Lord God, we thank you for refreshing us with your word in sacrament this morning. You made many wonderful promises to the patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, concerning your son, Jesus Christ. Bless us with your presence this morning as we study your word, grow in the knowledge of your son, and live by faith in all of your promises, especially the forgiveness of sins and the promise of everlasting life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, we're in Genesis chapter 32 today. If you remember where we left off a couple weeks ago, we are dealing with Jacob and his deliverance and escape from his oppressive father-in-law, Laban. You remember that? So... Jacob comes to Haran with nothing, and he's in uh, poverty, shows up to Haran and falls in love with this pretty gal named Rachel at the well. Uh, Laban, you know, sees dollar signs there, and he, he strikes a deal that uh, Jacob's going to work for seven years for Rachel. And then after that seven years and that, that party, he wakes up in the next morning and and who's in his bed? Well, it's Leah. And so he ends up working another seven years for, for Rachel. Okay, so there's 14 years there. And then you now have another six years where Jacob is kind of pushed around by Laban, mistreated, abused, not receiving his wages. And then he finally gets to this 20 years, and he's, he's had it. And God even comes to him in a dream and says, you know, Jacob, get out of Dodge, you know. Uh, go back to the land of Canaan, uh, to the land of promise. Um, and I'm going to bless you there. And uh, so he has a meeting with his two wives and, uh, and they hightail out of there and they make their escape. This time he's got 11 sons and one daughter. He's got a big crew and lots of responsibilities. Well, Laban takes af after him, reaches him after seven days, and there's really something of, um, you know, something of a fight there. There's a lot of, uh, you know, frustration and anger that had been built up uh, between them. And they basically, you know, there's a lot going there with a uh, pile of stones, but they basically kind of draw a line in the sand and say, hey, you don't come over here, and I'm not going to go over there, and we're going to go our, our separate ways. Jacob was under a real threat of violence from Laban and from his sons who were hostile to him. And um, it was a real conflict. You know, you know, before we go on, I do think it's important just to at least take a moment and think about how you have God's promise of the gospel coming through Jacob and the patriar patriarchs and you know going back here and just thinking about what we've been studying and looking at with one another you'd think that a family who is carrying the promise of the gospel would have nice tidy lives right you'd think of them well they've just got to be dressed in pretty robes all day and holding their hands the right way and singing the right hymns and just doing really pious stuff all the time. But what do you see there? You know, you got family fights. And you got infidelity. And you got um, the sister-wife swap thing that we're all trying to get our heads around. And, you know, all sorts of moments of real weakness and, uh, and struggles with the patriarchs. And it's worth thinking about that. Um, you know, sometimes when people are reading the Bible or, you know, for the first time and becoming acquainted with the scriptures, they're kind of reading through it and they're saying, well, you know, these people are kind of awful. This is pretty messy. And that's really the whole point. I mean, if you read the scriptures through, you know, Luther loved to say, you, you know, we're not dealing with cardboard saints, with paper saints. You know, these are real people with real struggles and, you know, Part of the point of seeing all of these really troubled people and these broken families and these conflicts and these 
times of real weakness of the flesh. It gives hope and consolation to us. It also sets up quite a contrast between sinful man and holy and perfect gods, that when Jesus shows up on the scene, there's the perfection we've all been waiting for. And then there's also consolation for us as you think about your own family. You know, think about Abraham, Isaac, and and uh, Jacob, and all the prophets and patriarchs. You know, like you, they had some real messy lives. They had some real issues there. They were everything was not pristine and trouble-free and kind of hallmark, you know, hallmark propaganda stuff. It was people with uh, you know, troubled family, and so it shows us our great need for shows us our need for Christ. Hey, when we, uh, where we um, pick up today, Jacob had left Laban in Haran. Okay, he's going um, southwest. And uh, he had just escaped from uh, oppressive Laban. You know, in our culture, we have this phrase, we say, between a rock and a hard place. Have you heard that before? Meaning that, you know, to the east, Jacob has his oppressive, tyrannical father-in-law and his brothers-in-law who are after him and hate his guts. He's been delivered from that. But then to the west, as he's journeying, journeying southwest, you know, it's a tough situation too. Because now he's coming back into the land of Canaan, and who's in Canaan? Who's waiting for him? Remember? Yeah, so remember the last word. What's the last thing we remember about Esau after Jacob had, you know, stolen his uh, birthright and defrauded him of his blessing? Remember, Esau said, when the, days of my, when the days of mourning for my father are done, I'm going to kill my brother Jacob. And so now that's where uh, that's where Jacob's that's where Jacob's going. Um, so that's the setup for our uh, scripture today that I want to look at. Now, when you think about Genesis chapter thirty-two, you know immediately your mind goes to the wrestling match between Jacob and the the Lord. Remember that that drop-down, drag-out. Wrestling match. So what we're looking at today is kind of setting that up. We're kind of looking at the first 20 verses of Genesis, which is going to set up the, that wrestling match. And I think there's some neat things here that um, I like to discuss and hopefully, hopefully along the way provide a little insight for you. And before we get into this... Um, what you're going to see is Jacob is afraid of his brother. He's hoping for reconciliation, and he is going to send kind of many gifts along the way to pacify his brother in hopes of reconciliation and safety for his family. First couple of verses. This is Genesis chapter 32, just the first couple verses here. Jacob went on his way. And the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he called the name of the place Mahanaim. It's kind of interesting how this starts. Remember, as Jacob is leaving the land of Canaan to go to Haran to escape the wrath of his brother and to look for his wife, as he sets out on his way, remember what we looked at you know, several weeks ago? Who is he met by? Well, angels ascending and descending on the, the ladder there. Uh, remember, we looked at Jacob's ladder. And now, 20 years later, he's coming out of that chapter in his life, out of Haran, and he's met by angels again. Um, a company of angels. You know, at this moment, there's some real trial, there's some real angst going on with Jacob. He's preparing to meet his brother. Uh, he's got this large family. He realizes that there's a real uh, threat there. 
and God sends angels to, to be with him and to comfort him. Um, it makes me even think about our Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane, um, anticipating the trial of the cross. Nevertheless, not your will be done, excuse me, not my will, but thy will be done. And right after that, we hear that angels came and were ministering unto Jesus. Remember, the writer to the Hebrew says, are not all angels ministering spirits uh, unto those he has, to whom he has called salvation? Um, and then he, look what Jacob says. He says, this is God's camp. This is God's camp. And that also reminds me of the words that, that Jacob had said regarding the angels 20 years earlier. Remember what he said? This is the, yeah, this is the house. How awesome is this place? This is the house of, this is the house of God. Um, what else did he say? Yeah, this is the house of, uh, this is the gate of heaven. He's acknowledging the presence of, of angels there. And then he, he calls the name of the place Mahanaim. Mahanaim. And I think there's a couple ways. Mahanaim means two companies. Two companies. And I think there's a couple ways so you can think about that. Later, you know, Jacob's family, to avoid uh, total destruction, divides his family into two camps. But I also think something else might be going on here. Because this place Mahanaim means two companies. And I think Jacob's looking at his own company. I think he's looking at his own family, his sons, his wives, servants, shepherds, cattle. But I also think he's thinking about the heavenly company, you know, angels, archangels, all the company of heaven that are, that are with them. When I hear about these angels surrounding Jacob in his time of trial where he's really suffering here, um, it makes me think of the story of Elijah and his servant about the, the vision of the angels and the, and the chariots. Um, do you know what story I'm talking about? It comes from 2 Kings chapter 6. And we looked at it in vacation Bible study this last summer because we were talking about spiritual warfare. And if you need a refresher on that, account of God's servant Elisha. This is the deal. Elisha is tipping off the king of Syria, the Arameans, about, um, excuse me, he's tipping off the king of Israel, what the king of Syria and his military are up to. And the king of Syria basically says, you know, what's going on? It seems like no matter what we do, Israel knows what we're doing. And so the king of Syria finds out that there's this guy named Elisha who knows exactly what they're up to. And so Elisha sends a whole army of assassins, a whole army to go after um, Elisha and Doth, Dothan, Dothan. And with him is, uh, is his servant named, it's, we don't know for sure, but I think it's Gehazi. And at the time, Elisha is just hanging out in his tent. The king of Syria sends this whole band of warriors, a whole army, a band of assassins to kill God's servant, Elisha. And they surround Elisha's camp. And Elisha's servant, uh, it's morning, and Elisha's servant goes out of the tent and he sees this whole army of uh, Syrian soldiers, and they're looking pretty hostile. They're not there for breakfast, you know. And he goes into uh, he goes into the tent, and again he talks with Elijah and says, "You know, Elijah, we got to do something. We got all these assassins. We got this whole army out here, and uh, what are we gonna do?" He's really freaking out. And you remember how Elijah reacts? He's just kind of sitting there, drinking his coffee not concerned at all and he's got this great line he says don't you know that there are more on our side than on their side 
you know, there's no one with them at all, but that's, that's what he says. And then uh, Elisha starts to pray. He starts to pray. And it's interesting because Elisha's not praying for deliverance or necessarily help from all these assassins, but his prayer is just that the eyes of his servant would be opened to see what he sees. You know, um, Lord, open my servant's eyes that he may see the unseen things, that he may see what I know to be there, the things that I see. And God delivers on that prayer, and um, Elisha Servic walks out of the tent, and he sees chariots and horsemen and angel armies surrounding the Syrian army, kind of dwarfing the Syrian army, far greater in power than the puny Syrians. And then I think uh, Elisha's servant comes back in and probably starts sipping some coffee too. He's not concerned. Anyways, it wasn't a good day for the Syrians that day. They're all blinded. And, um, and then God showed mercy on, uh, on all those assassins. But uh, anyways, it's an important story. And um, I bring it up because I think that's the sort of vision you should have right now when Jacob, this patriarch, is at this moment of trial. And as you think about our Lord ministered to also in the Garden of Gethsemane, these might have been the same, same angels, you know? These might have been the same angelic army uh, that, that Jacob's with here, the same army who, who comforted Elisha's uh, servant and protected Elijah during that time. Um, you know, there's a great connection here with the divine service. I like to do this when I can. You know, right before the communion liturgy, holy, 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 Lord God of Sabaoth. And every time we, we pray Sabaoth, anyone know the definition of Sabaoth when we're praying holy, 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 Lord God of Sabaoth? It's this Hebrew word. And catechism students, I'd be really tickled if you knew this one. I think you might. What does Sabaoth mean? What does Sabaoth mean? I think you're being shy. I think some of you do know it. Otherwise, we'll open it up to everyone. Okay, Mr. Gavin. Yeah, host, but I like angel armies. It literally means, uh, yeah, armies of angels, armies of God's angels. And um, so the same scene where you have Jacob surrounded by these, this angelic company, this huge scene of spiritual warfare. And all these uh, angels with all their power. I mean, that's the sort of thing that uh, we should be thinking about as we're singing, Holy, 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 Lord God of Sabaoth, uh, that these same angelic angels are all around us. Just a couple weeks ago, uh, one, of the, one of you, I won't single anyone out if you don't want me to, but someone asked, you know, they noticed some uh, faces on the buttresses or columns of the church in our nave. And they said, you know, Pastor, what's up with those faces? And what's the deal with that? Have you noticed those? Those are angels, you know? And obviously they're just, uh, you know, they're carvings from those who uh, built our church 100 years ago. But they are there to encourage you and to inspire you to use your Christian imagination and to think about what sort of company you're involved in here, that you have you know, company that you see with your eyes, and then you have the unseen company of angels that are also with you. So when I say use your imagination to think about those things, it's not that we're using our imagination to think about things that aren't there, but we're using our imagination to think about things that actually are there. You know? So any thoughts or comments thus far before we press on a bit with this account? Talk about angels all day, don't you? We gotta go on. So we have a company of angels with him. You know, I'm not opposed to think of it in a somewhat similar way to when Jacob rolled in there. You have a, uh, a company of angels ascending and descending on that staircase. And so it's almost like, uh, 
you know, you have this angel experience as a bookend here as he's coming into Haran and coming out. Verse 3, verse 3. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent, I have sent to tell my lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. So what's Jacob hoping to do here? What's his goal? Dr. Lynn. Uh, very much like the, the spies with Joshua. You gotta want to check it out first, see what's going on. Yeah. And uh, s- send a party to, to scout out the trouble ahead. Right, right. And, you know, Jacob is being Jacob. Let's not forget he is a good, he's, he's like a CEO sort of guy. He's a good, he's a schemer. He's a planner. You know, he knows how to get things done. So, yeah, he's going to send out a party and check things out. And he's, going, he's, he's bringing a pretty gracious and respectful message, isn't he? And, um, you know, I know Jacob has some weaknesses there that there's often some, you know, heavy self-interest and, and that sort of thing going on here. But I really think this is a sincere, this is a sincere message and a humble message of um, wanting and desiring reconciliation with his brother and to pacify his brother here. Now, look at how courteous and respectful that message is that goes to Esau. And I underlined a couple words here that I think are interesting, and I want to know if you think they're interesting too. See them? How does he address Esau? My Lord. And how does he, how does he identify himself? Your servant. What's, what's interesting about that? What's strange about that, Dr. Patterson? The older will serve the younger. Yeah, yeah. We have promised that the older shall serve the younger, that Esau shall serve Jacob, and that Esau would be the servant. But it's kind of fascinating that now it's all, in the language of Jacob, it's, it's reversed. Isn't it? Very interesting. Um, I think this. I think this also goes to the very mystery of Christ Himself. I mean, remember, Christ, God of God, Light of Light, Eternal God. And I want you to think about our Lord in the upper room, taking the form of a servant. You know, whoever is greatest among you must be the the least. I did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give my life as a ransom for many. So in the language here, you see Jacob reversing this, this language. There's a real desire to be of service to, to Esau. And there's this very respectful address to, to Esau. Again, he's hoping for reconciliation. There's this conflict here. Um, I think, uh, you know, they are at the point of murder 20 years ago. But now it's 20 years later. And I think, you know, just as a parish pastor, it makes me think of, um, you know, members that I've served over the years who, who are also dealing with real significant family conflict. And I mean complete estrangement from family members. And as a parish pastor, with those sort of situations, you always do want to see, um, you want to see reconciliation, you want to work for it, you want to pray for it, you want to, you know, be directed in that sort of way. But even the reality for, for Christians, for, for God-fearing Christians is, on this side of heaven, it doesn't always, it's not immediate, you know? So, you know, we have this phrase that time heals. 
And obviously, you know, only Christ can heal. And, but there is a reality of that that's true also for, for Christians. There is, um, you know, God does, God with his Holy Spirit is working to soften hearts and to bring families back together. And maybe when you think about members in your own family, I mean, who doesn't have a family where you have family members estranged in one way or another? That there is some encouragement for us that sometimes it takes you know, 20 years or 30 years or a lifetime um, as we work toward these things. And then if it's not ultimately healed in this life, guess what? By God's grace, it's healed in the life to come where there's perfect re- reconciliation with God and, and one another. So just a pastoral thought. Yeah. How do you take um, verse 5? It's sort of interesting. He says, um, says your servant Jacob. And then he starts talking about himself, what he's, everything he's got. And it's almost like he's saying, hey, look, you know, I'm a pretty important guy. Yeah, so I, I think he is... I think he is Get putting a little preview before Esau that he is, has been richly blessed by God. And as this account moves on, you're going to see Jacob send drove upon drove a procession of gifts that he's going to lavish upon Esau. So, yeah, I think Jacob is tipping his brother off on that he's got lots of gifts and those gifts are going to be involved in the reconciliation and you know you can kind of be like really hard on the patriarch and say hey what does stuff have to do with it you know what does money or goods have to do with it but um you know luther kind of liked that in his commentary too he basically says you know it'd be foolish for jacob not to use the resources and material goods that God has given him to advance this, you know. And you could be a radical. You could say, okay, it's, you know, it's only by faith alone. Why don't you just leave, you know, the stuff out of it? But, uh, you know, Luther, you know, he, he sees a real, um, you know, really godly stuff going on here with the, with the gifts that, that Jacob's lavishing upon his brother uh, Esau. Yeah, nice. Nice connection. Very nice, Trent. Thank you. Yeah, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous mammon. So that when your life ends, they will receive you into eternal dwellings. Yeah, beautiful connection. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you. Okay. These shepherds, these messengers are coming back. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. Okay, so the report that comes back from the servants is a little ambiguous about what Esau is planning. But, you know, if he's got 400 men coming with him, you know, it doesn't look good. And these, 400, these are 400 men. This would be like a war party. You know, think about that Syrian army. It's probably something more comparable to that. And Jacob's not, you know, he's not set up for this thing. He's got a very domestic sort of outfit going on here. He's got some wives. He's got some servants. He's got some shepherds. He's got some, some cattle. Um, Jacob's afraid. He's really distressed here. So he does something, uh, you know, kind of shrewd. Does something that in a moment of uh, real fear and panic probably any of us would do. He's got this big uh, company. He's got this big family. I mean, it's just kind of like cold calculating stuff here. And he's going to split his family and herds into two groups. Why? So that if one half is massacred, the other half is going to is going to live. Um, it's a real trial. Real trial. None of us have ever been tested like that. And that brings us to his, brings us to a prayer. Anyone want to say anything, Dr. Lane? Well, I, I, I have a question. So, 
Dr. German, but um, messengers, of course, is, is the same word for angels. Yeah. And then there seems to be some sort of connection here to uh, Mahanaim with the two camps. So on the one hand, he's got angels that he's, he's seeing. He knows that this is God's camp. But he calls it like the twofold camp as you were as you were showing. Yeah. Uh, then he's splitting them, up, splitting his his whole household into two camps. I'm just Lord trying to tell us something. Yeah. So I I think there's something going on here. So J Jacob is, and I don't know if this goes exactly to what you're you're aiming at, but um, okay. Yeah, I think he's sending out. Yeah, he's. There's some fun language. He's sending out servants, um, um, Did you just get that with, up of right? Malakim, Malakim. Yeah. So you got all the, the angels that came to him are actually then he's sending out angels. Right? Yeah, right, right. But we just translate that as messengers, but right. it's same. Yeah, thanks. So I, so I see the church a bit. I see, I see Jacob sending out messengers, and I never say to prop myself up, but sending out the ministry, sending out the pastors, sending out the angels to bring a gift of reconciliation and then to lavish upon the undeserving these lavish gifts. And they kind of come in, in, in these processions and droves. And, you know, to me it looks a lot like life in the church, that you have, you know, the message of the gospel and the angelic message of the gospel that is being sent out, and with them they bring gifts and treasures. And I think there's something there that really goes to uh, the deep minutes, you know, mystery and ministry of the gospel, of uh, yeah, being being lavished with this obscene amount of treasures and gifts from God. So I think something's going on there. Verse six. Uh, actually, anything we, else we want to talk about with that? There are some intriguing yeah. parallels to the Exodus, too, where Jacob is kind of on an Exodus from Laban, and then now he's in the, he's got these camps, so we're kind of tabernacle land here where he's got multiple camps. We're in the wilderness. Yeah. Are the angels with us only in Bethel, or is God's presence among us more mobile than that? Right. So it's mobile, and now he he sends out these angelic messengers like Israel will send out to Edom mm. much later, but they don't always get respected, as you pointed out. Like Edom says, I don't want anything to do with your messengers, and you can't pass through. And, yeah. But Jacob sends out messengers to to uh, to Esau, and he's interested in talking. Right. <laughs> right. I'm not sure what the what are the four hundred mean, but we're. It, it receives some sort of hearing that, well, he's going to come and we're going to talk. Yeah. And so there is something of a, I guess you have a kind of breakaway from Laban, but now you have a kind of uh, uh, reconciliation of sorts. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, John. Jacob is obviously thinking, <clears throat> he's assuming that Esau is going to attack. Yeah. He said, well, because Esau is going to attack, I'll split my camp. And then if he, if he jumps on the one, the other one will, right. will get away. But I wonder, because if he attacks the one and Jacob isn't there, the first question is going to be, okay, where's Jacob? Right, right. And, um, you know, I read a couple commentaries on this. And, uh, you know, sometimes commentators or people who are thinking through these are really hard on, I think really hard on the patriarch. Like sometimes they'll say, you know, well, he should have, you know, he should have just believed that the promise was there. He should have had no doubt about God's uh, protection. But yeah, these are not cardboard saints. And um, um, I want to look at this prayer. However, if there is a gentle, um, if there is a gentle rebuke for the patriarch here, I think you can make room for this. That. You know, he hears of the 400 men coming. He panics, splits the camp, makes a plan. And, uh, you know, he's going to pray a beautiful prayer here. And I want to look at this prayer a little bit. But if you were going to give a gentle rebuke to the patriarch, what could it be in terms of his priorities? 
panic, separate the camp, then pray. Right. Yeah, maybe it could have been reversed. I mean, maybe the first thing, you know, when God sends you some sort of real trial or, or fear there is, is to drop on your knees and pray, uh, and pray a prayer. Hey, this is a great prayer. I just want to unpack this a little bit. Let me, I want to read through this. Okay, now he's on his knees. Now he's on his knees. You could call this a foxhole prayer. Have you heard of that before? Foxhole prayer. You know? But God hears foxhole prayers too. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and of all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. So there he gets some insight into what he's really fearing here, you know, the, the destruction of his wives and children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Now, when I'm doing new member catechesis here, you know, occasionally when God blesses us with some new members, I normally have a day where I spend on prayer. And I haven't yet looked at this prayer, but this is a beauty. I think it's a really nice model for what Christian prayer should look like and sound like. Um, I highlighted a couple colors on the screen just because I wanted to break it up a little bit. Um, he addresses the God of his father Abraham, uh, Isaac, and also the Lord who spoke to me. You know, this is recalling all the promises. The Lord who so he's praying to God who said to him, you know, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. He's saying, you know, you told me that. You told me to be here. You told me to leave Haran, you told me to go southwest back in the land of Canaan, and you promised to do me good. You know, it's pretty bold. It's pretty good. Um, I was thinking about that also as Dr. Lane was reading our, kind of interesting, we're studying Genesis 32. This morning we had Exodus 32. And Moses, God's servant, he prays of beauty too. And it is really brazen and really bold, isn't it? Remember, they're dealing with, uh, you know, um, some trouble there and dealing with God's wrath. And uh, he prays, you know, <laughs> um, look, God, you, you brought us out here. And if we're destroyed, it just means the Egyptians are going to say, hey, what a cruel God we have. He's brought us out here into this miserable place just to kill us out here. And you're going to, you know, you're going to let this happen? I mean, that's, that's tough stuff, isn't it? But, um, you know, those are the sort of prayers that God likes, by the way. Um, you know, we deal with uh, the Canaanite woman comes, comes around in the lectionary, that stubborn woman who refuses to let go of of Jesus until uh, he blesses her. Um, these are the sort of bold prayers that Christians are supposed to pray. And the problem is we normally like to sound too pious and too calm and everything. You know, according to, you know, the prayers that you see in the, especially in the Old Testament, you have, you have the prophets and patriarchs really driving in on God and what are they grabbing hold of? Yeah, and they're grabbing hold of the promises of God. And in the case of Exodus 32 that Dr. Lane read this morning, it's, uh, you know, they're calling God to re repent, to, to literally relent of this disaster and, and change course. There's boldness there. There's confidence in that prayer. A little more. Verse 10, I'm not worthy of the, next little part of the prayer, I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and of all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. What's that in regards to prayer? What do you see there? What do you call that? Humility? Yeah, some real humility on Jacob here. 
We'd also call this a confession. A confession. A poor, miserable sinner. I haven't deserved a single thing. You know, I, I crossed only with, the, with my staff, the Jordan, and now I've become two camps. You have richly blessed me. Verse 11, then you have the petition. You have the petition. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. So that's the petition. First you have God. He's calling upon God, uh, recalling the promises. He's confessing his sin and his unworthiness, recalling the favor that he has received from God, and then he is making his petition. And then in verse 12, he's going to grab a fistful of the promises again, and he's kind of grabbing the big guns here, the trump card. Verse 12, but you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. You know, he's grabbing a fistful of Genesis chapter 12, the call of Abraham. He's grabbing a fistful of Genesis 15, God's covenant uh, with Abram. So really beautiful prayer. Any comments or thoughts that you have on that prayer? Anything you want to share, Ben? Yeah, I like that. Yeah, not a, not a whisper of worthiness or unworthiness, right? Just all 100% God's promises. I like that. Just a larger context here. Um, is it possible that Jacob is just totally misunderstanding and misreading the situation? So it could very well be that it's through this prayer that the Lord turns the heart of Esau, but we get no mention of it. Right, right. That he's, he's, he's absolutely misunderstanding what Esau is coming to do. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. I think there's a little ambiguity with the I mean, it's hard to know, but I would say he doesn't know. And I think that, um, yeah, he is fearing the worst, and it very well may be a irrational fear that may not be there. And, you know, you can relate. Like, think about, the mo think about your day and how you live and how you think and, how and your fantasies and the things you fear. They are so terrific. They are so irrational are they not that we and I think it's one of the ways that we experience also the law right that there's a there's a sense of wrath and punishment you know that may not be anchored in reality but it's some sort of it's some sort of way by which we experience our guilt and the power of the and the power of the law so I think some of that might be going on um, think about most of the things that you're afraid of they never, 99.99% of them never materialize, right? There's this, uh, there's this book that I read to my children called Mikey and the Dragons. And it's about this, uh, it's about this little kid and he's afraid of dragons all the time and just terrified. And then, um, I'll spare you the whole storyline, but at the, the point is at the end, he finds out that the dragons in this cave that he's so afraid of are just like the size of puppy dogs. And they're these cute little dragons, you know? And the point is that our, so much of our fear is irrational and um, aren't, aren't grounded in reality. So Dr. Lynn, anything else you want to say about that? Um, no, no, I think that's helpful. I think yeah. Right. Yeah, I think that's key. Yeah. Right. But yeah, we don't we don't ultimately know exactly what Esau's intentions are um, at that point, and Jacob is probably too quick to expect the the worst there. And yeah, like like we were talking about, I I think it's more of a manifestation of the mistreatment and the guilt and the power of God's law that's been working on 
Jacob's heart here. Could we also say, though, that it's not irrational in a certain sense that Jacob's actually being realistic about what he deserves from Esau? Yeah. You know, there's a sense where uh, he just didn't expect mercy. He just didn't expect mercy from Esau. Right, right. Um, and so in that sense, it, it, it is going to be irrational, which is always the way the law in the gospel works. Right, right. Yeah, well said. Anything else? Dr. Patterson? Um, just looking at how you split this up with the colors, I'm guessing you had a thought there with the, the way that we pray according to what God has revealed in the scriptures, that our prayers are drawn out of what God has said to us. And this is the model, isn't it, that Lord Luther gave us? Yeah. It, uh, the Lord has said, and confess your sins in light of the Ten Commandments, and ask for the prayer that you were asking for, and giving thanks to God for his Right, right. Yeah, there's a, what, what is it? T, th there's a Thanksgiving confession, instruction. In, instruction. Thanksgiving confession. Yeah, so, yeah, so there's a, there's a, yeah, there's a form there. It's, it's a, you know, what sort of God do we have? A confession of sins, the petition, and then, yeah, grabbing those, grabbing those promises. So, yeah, I just want to finish. We just have a couple more verses to the text so you can get a sense of how this develops. I'm just going to read some, I'm just going to get through some text here. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. So, you know, this is the first time we're kind of dealing in numbers. So you can kind of see that fruitfulness that Jacob was having in that final six years in, in Haran here. And if these are just the gifts, you've got to wonder what, what he's got there. These, I'm going to keep going. These he handed over to his servants. Every drove by itself. So this is going to be several different groups of lavish gifts. And said to his servants, said to the angels, said to the ministers, Pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks, To whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are present, sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed their droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. Jacob is lavishing his brother generously with all kinds of gifts. And like I said earlier, he's doing it in this very dramatic, liturgical uh, procession. And it's almost like, you know, he gets the first group of gifts, and you think, well, that's, you know, that's huge. And then, like, whoa, another, another drove of gifts coming. And, uh, and they just keep... Uh, they just keep coming here. So, um, yeah, like I said, there is, um, yeah, I think this is, uh, gives us an insight into the mystery of Christ, that our Lord's ministry is a ministry of gift giving and reconciliation. And this reconciliation for, with Esau is in the works. It's in the works. And next week, we're going to have a look at Jacob's wrestling match. And I think that's where you can, you know, even here in this reading today, you can kind of see that Jacob, I think there's some restoration. You know, he's really becoming a new man. There's humil humility here. There's some real faith. But that official baptism or transformation is really officially next week, I think, where you see him go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Lord. And in order for true reconciliation and true newness of life 
you know, first you need to be broken. Broken. And uh, learn to lean completely on the Lord and his promises. So maybe just a little preview of what's to come there. Any comments or questions before we depart? Dr. Gervin. Like the language of servants, he's, he's very careful throughout his speeches uh, what he calls Esau, like brother or servant, or he confesses his servitude to God, but also just in this language here, every messenger is to say your servant Jacob instead of your brother Jacob. Right. Know, kind of thing. It almost, it's kind of like the prodigal son, you might think, where I'm not worthy to be called your brother anymore. Just treat me like one of your servants. I'll work my way back up. Yeah. And yet what he offers is all the gifts of this, as you said, it's all liturgical stuff, all the stuff that's all sacrificial yeah. stuff. You know, this overwhelmingly, the language of appeasing is, is to cover atonement, um, accepting me, seeing his face, and mm-hmm. so on. So it's all, yeah, it's all stuff of the, of the liturgy that cares about the reconciliation that we need. Yeah, yeah, thanks, Dr. German. And not into a deep dive with Hebrew, but if uh, German is with you, there's so much going on with the, with, with the face. There's just so much face line. Anytime anything's coming before one another, it's always before my face, and there's, there's this desire for this kind of heavenly benediction and coming face-to-face with the Lord in a way that, that comes with that wrestling match. Yeah, but um, yeah, I was hoping to receive this, uh, this benediction. Hey, let's pray. Let's pray. Lord God, dear Father in heaven, we thank you for the rich mercy and grace that you showed to that uh, deceiver, Jacob. Um, You have also been so merciful to us, even though we have schemed and deceived and fallen short of your will for our lives. Continue to richly bless us with your grace and send the ministers and messengers of your gospel to lavish us with gifts that we do not deserve, namely forgiveness and reconciliation and the privilege to see you someday face to face in the splendor of paradise. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Oh yeah. Yeah, next week you have a special presentation by Pastor Brandon Coble. He's going to be talking about Lutheran education. What is Lutheran?